You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Paul Lazarus. In the 1980s, I produced and hosted a radio series called Anything Goes, a celebration of the American musical theater. Now the Broadway Podcast Network is bringing back this show. Today, excerpts from an interview with composer Julie Stein, who created the music for such celebrated shows as Funny Girl, Peter Pan, and the Broadway classic Gypsy. This interview took place originally on April 12, 1979, on the occasion of the release of Julie Stein's biography, simply called Julie. In the early days, how did... uh you keep yourself going, you and your family. I know that you... Well, in the early days, I was born in London in 1905. My father was a professional wrestler. And uh, we used to go to music halls when I was of age, about three years old. I went to music halls in London. And uh, my father was a, later on became an egg inspector. And I used to have these functions. And I used to perform as a child entertainer. I was a Harry Lauder imitator. And uh, Harry Lauder was the... Al Jolson of London that time, an international star. I've heard a story about uh, your first stage experience. Yes, yeah, so we went once to music hall when I was about four and a half years old or five years old. And uh, we had a box. My rich aunt and uncle took us there and we had a box alongside the stage. And uh, I jumped without anybody knowing. I jumped up on a stage and everybody thought it was Harry Lauder with a plant, so to speak. And uh, it was right in the middle of his song. And uh, the audience laughed, and they thought that uh, perhaps this was part of the act, but indeed it wasn't. And when they laughed, he turned around and lo and behold, there I was, this little boy, and uh, he stopped the orchestra, and uh, he spoke to me, and he said what my name was, and I told him my name, and he asked me, (coughs) what do I do? Uh, do I perform? I said, yes. He said, well, what do you perform? I said, everything you do, which got another laugh in the audience. He said, would you like to sing one of my songs? And I said, yes. And I said, I'd like to sing She's My Daisy. And uh, he handed me his crook, and I performed She's My Daisy with the orchestra. And of course, it was an overwhelming thing. Then I ran back to my box, and my mother and father reprimanded me for it. My father wanted to kill me. And uh, they made me go backstage and to apologize. 
when we entered Lotter's room, he laughed and he told me that he didn't mind that at all. In fact, it was great fun because it gets to be routine doing show after show and this was something new for him. But he said, never be an imitator. And he told my mother and father that I should take piano because I had a good sense of rhythm and good sense of music that I should study instrument and uh, that was in London. So I started taking piano lessons in London and we didn't have a piano at home nationally, it was too big, too expensive. So I uh, practiced in a hall and where you rent a hall for an hour every day. I finally got into the London Conservatory and I was just getting on with the early studies, the hand studies and scales and things like that when we moved to the United States from London. You moved to uh, Chicago area. Moved right? to Chicago, yes. My father was an egg inspector. It was during the war, 1912. There was a demand and a, a group of them came over from Europe. My father was one. We And Chicago being the largest railroad center and the center of uh, nationally in our country, all the eggs that for Wisconsin, Michigan, and Iowa, Illinois, Indiana are all centered in Chicago because of being a it was the largest railroad center in the world. You started playing piano with a lot of jazz greats in Chicago. And well, that's later on. Now I was first before that, I went to Chicago College of Music and I became a Mozart, I won a Mozart scholarship. I was a child prodigy, played with Chicago Symphony, many symphony orchestras. And I uh, damaged my uh, second finger on my right hand. Uh, we were very poor and so I'm going to my mother and father, I took a job when I was about 11 years old there were no child labor laws then. Uh, and I took a job, a fellow told me I could, I could earn $3 on Fridays and Saturdays by, in, in three hours each day by taking a long thin wire, about three feet long, this thin wire, and you put it in a press sort of, and you pull a lever, and out comes a wire coat hanger. And uh, it was, I liked it because it was new to me to think that I could make a coat hanger, which was a whole avenue that I had made it, you know. But I got my finger caught in the press, and it was only because I grabbed my finger of pain, but by myself grabbing the finger and pressing it, I held it together because I would have lost the, the tip of the first joint. Mm -hmm. uh, the audience, your audience can't see it, but I'll let you see. You see, this finger goes down, that's it. And I lost a sense of feel in that the tip there, and it affected my playing, my technique. And so uh, when I went to uh, study one year with a great, great pianist of the time, Harold Bauer, who taught a, a summer course in Chicago, and, I, and he told me that I, I'm very musical and all that, but I'd never become a great pianist because that finger has impaired me. And he says, and so why, why don't you go into conducting or writing or something like that? And of course, I was shattered because I really liked it and I wanted to be that uh, because I had won over an audience as a child playing the Mozart A major and the Mozart D minor. And I started going to high school, and in high school, I quickly found that no one cared for my talents as what I played Chopin, etc. That everybody just, just walked away. And I found some terrible pianist who played for dancing during lunch hour at high school. Kids used to congregate in the gym and dance at lunch hour, and I felt that I could do better. And I picked up some songs in a music shop and learned them, and came quickly the next week, Monday morning, rushed to the gymnasium and played 
these popular songs, and I was quite good at it. And fellas wanted me to play a, a school, sophomore dance and a junior prom or whatnot, and and I liked it. And I from then I became a professional and played in little bands. And one band I played with along the road, climbing. A few years had passed. Uh, in my band was Benny Goodman, and. Uh, and then I gave up my band. I went with the Ben Pollock band, which, would I, which was the best Dixieland 10-piece band that ever was, because guys like the Gene Goldkett band used to come back to Detroit. They used to come from all over this band. In the band, of course, were the future greats of our country. The, the, the nucleus of the big band era practically was in that band. Uh, Charlie Spivak was the second trumpet player. Uh, Glenn Miller was a trombone player. Jack Teagarden was another trombone player. Benny Goodman was the was the clarinet and saxophone player, third saxophone player. Chicago was a great nucleus of jazz. Uh, we used to go down to hear King jo Joe Oliver at the Lincoln Gardens in Chicago, and Glenn Miller once told him, "Joe, you can't use your chops up like that, blowing all night from ten and at night till four in the morning. You ought to get somebody else to play." along with you and so he sent up from New Orleans and his name was Louis Armstrong and he played second trumpet to Joe Oliver. Well it was just Chicago was just the the world was going on there you know and I worked for the Capone syndicate in place had my own band and uh, and so on. You met on. Al Capone at one, one uh, uh, when he was putting together that evening that you, you Oh that was the uh, the week before the Dempsey Tunney fight uh, he entertained the senators, governors, mayors from all over the United States at the Metropole Hotel for a whole week. Every night there was a different show and of course the big thing was the opening night. Al Capone conducted my orchestra, big band, 50 men for that week, uh, Rhapsody in Blue. And Got up in the I, Well, I want to tell you something. Uh, when he told me he wanted to do it, I didn't about to laugh because after all it was him. But he was, a, I must say, he was a very amiable man. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, we never know what people are. The people walking the streets today, you say, oh, isn't that fella, some of our best friends, I mean, will stick a knife in you if you don't look. Al Capone never carried a gun, you know. He never uh, carried, he had bodyguards. And uh, that was the era I grew up in Chicago. And uh, I was unhappy with everything. I never wanted to write songs. I never wanted to have bands. I never wanted to coach girls. I didn't know what I wanted. What I wanted is what I couldn't be. What I the classical part of it, which to this day is something that... Are there regrets about Oh, so all my life there will be regrets. It hasn't stopped. I went to, I've been an analyst, all sorts of things, and I found out that's what... Uh, I'll tell you something. I was always insecure. I think until 15 years ago, I was insecure about my work, even though when I had hit shows and I... I don't think it wasn't until Funny Girl I'd had gone to a, a psychiatric therapist to find out certain things that bothered me that I was doing, like gambling and things like that. I, I went to find out what it was, and I, you know, Anas never tells you anything, he just listens, but you're, you do your homework by yourself, and you find, came to realize, and I realized that I was so insecure about songwriting. I was never insecure about my piano playing as a child. I was positive about that, positive. When I walked out on the stage of Chicago Symphony and played, I knew I was good. I knew I was good because I always felt that the audience, if they were any good, they'd be up there playing. So I knew I knew more than the audience. I think every artist does that too. You know, everybody says, oh, how well he played. 
You started writing songs about that time too, because I, I know I'm, I'm going to ask you later to play the the guy in the polka dot tie. Was that was that the first song? Well, that took place when I went to high school. I know. When when I was such a smash in the high school auditorium, a guy walked up to me and said, "Listen, uh, we're doing a school show in the uh, senior class, and we need a little song, uh, uh, a little song that we could kind of dance to, uh, kind of a sand dance. That was a soft shoe like it, and a sand dance. So I wrote this thing musically, and uh, it only it only had music then." And many years later, I put it in a movie at Republic, and there were words put to it by a fellow, the late, very good friend of mine, named Saul Meyer. Whatever happened to the guy with the polka dotted tie? He could sing so very high. He used to sing top tenor in the old quartet. Then he met a soprano from the Met. Tropolitan Opera, they sang together for a while. He surrendered to her smile. Then she marched him down the aisle. They settled down in a town that isn't on the map. And they lived together very happily ever after. And that's what happened to the guy with the polka dot tie and the girl that he met at the Met. So what do you call your first song? My first song, that is my first melodic thing in a popular field, which turned out, subsequently turned out to be Guy Polkadot. First time I wrote a song was when I was walking, I was playing in a band in Florida. Arnold Johnson was the name of the band. We were playing in Hollywood, Florida, doing the land boom down in Florida in 27. And I, there was a girl I wanted to date very badly. One night I did get a date with her, and we were walking along the beach about four o'clock in the morning along, it was just beautiful, and before it was all, but it was all very primitive down there. And I started humming a song. And she said, what is that? I said, I don't know, really. She says, well, you must have, the expression was then you made it up. She said, you made it up? I said, yeah, I made it up. Uh, she says, look, I'll date you every night next week if tonight when I come to the club with another fella, you play this song. <laughs> so I went home that day and orchestrated. We played at the club that night. It was an instant. But that was called Sunday. And to this day, it's one of my big standards because every year a new jazz group is recording it. That was set later to lyrics as well, I guess. Yeah, that was, I'm blue every Monday, thinking over Sunday. That was recorded by, that was one of the early big hits Gene Austin ever had, and Cliff Edwards, Ukulele Ike had, and the Gene Goldkett Band had a tremendous record of it. It was the first big jazz record we ever heard. Of course, I, we were playing it with the Pollock Band. That was our big number. That was my, I would call, my first song. That, that was a national hit. It sold about a million copies, you know. Uh, but I never wanted to write songs. And I left writing songs, had my own band, played in band. I didn't write again until, for serious, in 1940. Uh, when, well, uh, but first you went out to Hollywood to do the... Yeah, when I was a vocal coach in art in Hollywood, I coached Shirley Temple, Alice Faye, and Tony Martin, and uh, prepared all their works for the Ritz, all the stuff for the Ritz Brothers, everything at 20th Century Fox. I worked at 20th Century Fox. And... Uh, Seems like you had a difficult time with Miss Temple. In the, or everyone yeah, had a well, difficult uh, time. you know, she was a precocious child. You know, she knew she was good. Uh, she couldn't help but reading her name, Shirley Temple, all over the... Canopies. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a human uh, frailty. I mean, a human uh, thing of having a child knowing how 
good she is. She was a star, one of the biggest motion picture stars of the period. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Anything Goes with Paul Lazarus. You're listening to an interview conducted in 1979 with composer Julie Stein. A lot of people ask, I suppose even the people listening are asking, gee, I wonder what inspired him to write this magic or why it inspired him to write three quarters, five or inspired him to write people for barbers. How did this, uh, well, I just want to tell you something. There's no inspiration. It's perspiration. You work and you work, work, and you become a professional. I'm just not, there are thousands of songwriters fly by night. Hey, I wrote a song. Hey, listen to this. I get... I get Billy Joe to record it, I get this one recorded, or Paul Simon likes it, or all that stuff. That's nothing. But writing a song isn't one song. It's writing for longevity. Thank God my songs have longevity. They've lasted. I have songs now that are being played. As I mentioned one song Sunday. Well, my God, that's 27. That's 50 years ago. They're still playing a standard of mine. My show songs from Bells Are Ringing, and my show songs from Gypsy, my show songs from Funny Girl, and and uh, high button shoes and uh, and Peter Pan are are just played and played and played and played. Now here's uh, two of the most played songs we have in the confines of ASCAP. Uh, uh, everything's coming around roses, people. Well, people I wrote in '63, so now we're in '79. So that's 16 years ago. Uh, everything's coming around roses is '58. So that's. 21 years ago, so the songs are being played as much as any new song. And because of my early training playing with Glenn and playing with Jack Teagar and playing with Benny, they have a natural jazz instinct to them because I always write songs for the tenor saxophone because they make standards. I find all those jazz tenor saxophones, if they like it, it lasts forever. There's a story, the Jerome Kern story, while you were in Hollywood. And those Monday night meetings with the, all the, oh, yes. the famous songwriters it must have been yeah, terrific. It was one. It was a wonderful thing. You see, uh, J- Jerome Kern went. He was like he was like the dean. Everybody used to congregate his house Monday nights, and for his pleasure mainly. But uh, you'd find at that time uh, Harold Allen and uh, Ira Gershwin and Harry Warren and uh, oh, all the Hoagie Carmichael, whoever. The, all these Monday night come to Gershwin uh, to uh, Kern's house and. And uh, Kern would find out what's going on, what they're doing. It was like a little union meeting, and everybody tell what they, and everybody sit down and play a new song, or Kern sit down and play. And I, took, my publisher took me over one night, and my publisher was drunk that night. He was very embarrassing, and all the fellows were sitting there, and he walked in with me, and he says, this is my debut to these fellows, and he says, he, 
you, while you fellas are sitting on your ass cap here, he's writing all the songs and supporting you, which was very embarrassing for me. Anyhow, Mr. Kern came where I met him for the first time. And I had three songs on the hit parade one time that I had a long, long time. And uh, I believe it was this magic and something else. And now he asked me to play a long, long time. And as you know, it's been a long, long time. Uh, you know, it's Kiss. Kiss well, anyhow, that song only has 16 bars. And Kern was sweet. After that guy says, you know, those songs are the hardest songs to write. I had so much trouble with the siren song. The siren song, da-da. So he's saying he had trouble with 16 bars. I didn't want to tell him I wrote the song in three minutes because I'd spoil his point. See, I'm, I don't write those popular songs anymore. Those were growing up songs, writing for money, writing for recording artists. I don't write for that anymore. I write, I'm a dramatist now, and I write dramatic music for the theater. Uh, everything's coming up roses. I. I didn't know who's going to be in a show or what. I just wrote a thing that suited Arthur Lawrence's wonderful book, and of course, Stephen Sondheim wrote fabulous lyrics to the Gypsy score. But we write for the dramatic value of the piece, whatever we're writing for. If a song took over three minutes, I knew it wasn't going to be any good, because if it didn't play through naturally, like time after time, I wrote, I think, in a minute. If that was a thing at a, at a party where a Sinatra wanted to know if anybody had heard the uh, the score to Annie Get Your Gun, uh, you know, originally it was written by Jerome Kern and Dorothy Fields. Uh, Jerome Kern died, and uh, Irving Berlin subsequently wrote uh, the wonderful score of uh, Annie Get Your Gun. So, but before Kern died, but before Kern died, when he was still alive, uh, Sinatra was at Sinatra. He says, anybody heard uh, Frank wanting to know what's going on. Anybody heard the song's current song for any Get Your Gun? I said, I have. I heard one ballad. I really hadn't heard it. I was drunk and I said I had heard it. Well, he said, play it. So walking over, I had about four feet to get to the piano walker. In that time, I played it in the key of D. D is a very inventive key. It'll take you, uh, it's a classical key. Any sharp key, all the sharp keys are classical keys. I call them the classical keys. The, the flat keys are popular keys for me. When anybody plays the key of C, there's no key, you don't, no sound at all, it's just in the key of C. I'll tell you, many songs have been written in the key of C. I wrote them myself when I was writing for the masses. What were those parties like at Sinatra's house when all the people got together to do shows? Well, we were trying to keep Sinatra at home that time. His marriage was breaking up from Nancy. We liked Nancy. And we wanted to keep it together. We felt sorry for her. And so we used to get dream up these parties. Frank didn't know we'd, we'd keep him at home. See, we'd have a weekly party. Thursday night it was. And Thursday night, there was a new show every Thursday night. I mean a show. Sammy Kahn would be writing par the, the script. And we, and Axel Stordol would be arranging it. And, and I was writing the music. And, and, uh, and, uh, and Sammy Kahn was typing out the things. And we had people come over, rehearse Gene Kelly. Uh, Janet Blair, uh, Judy Garland, didn't matter who was in that show that week. We'd call them up and say, you're in the show next week. And they'd say, oh, great. I mean, it was like a movie deal. All for nothing. Was they, they were done at Frank's house. And this one night, as I, this one of the shows, we were short of talent. Frank said, anything uh, from the score of Annie Get Your Gun? And as I told you, I said, I heard it. And I was drunk. I walked to the piano, and I played quickly. Uh, 
I'm making it sound like Kern. And I finished through a whole chorus of the music of just of uh, time after time. Frank said, gee, that's beautiful. Oh, that Kern is unbelievable, you know? And I said, well, you're great, you're great, you know? Frank says, play it again. And I forgot what I played. I completely forgot. I didn't even know what, I didn't remember. I was stoned. I mean, I, there I was. I, I forgot what I played. But Sammy Khan didn't forget. And the next day, Sammy said, set the lyrics, and it became time after time, and we put it away. We were doing a movie for Frank at, it called It Happened in Brooklyn, and we used that song. Frank says, uh, yeah, the song by uh, the, uh, let's do that Jerome Kern song. He always called it the Jerome Kern song. <laughs> and so uh, became a tremendous, said, well, well, it's one of the biggest standards we have to this day. Uh, so in, in some ironic way, I was playing, making a song like Kern, which wasn't Kern at all, but had the flavor. I, as I told you, I played a key D. There's something, there's a longevity to all the Kern songs. There was a longevity. And all my songs, like songs like I Fall in Love Too Easily, there's no place you go in with somebody's going to sing I Fall in Love Too Easily. The minute you start playing and everybody runs to the piano and joins it because it's from Anchors Away. Or a song from my first show that flopped on the road was called Glad to See You, Died on the Road. It was the very a great first song called, stab uh, at Broadway, right? The, yeah, it closed down the road. It was called Glad to See You. Well, that was before High Button Shoes. But I'd had a song, one of my big standards, Guess I'll Hang My Tears Out to Dry, was from that show. So the theater, you're, anything that's dramatic has longevity. You take, like, you know one of the great dramatic songs of all time it was written for a re review by, by Yip Harburg, uh, and Jay Gorney, Brother Can You Spare a Dime? It's dramatic, so it lasts, up to this day it lasts. See, dramatic, the, see the most professional part about a song are the words. Because if the words are strong, sure there are tunes I've written where you could, you could say anything to time after time, you could say anything to people. I mean the tune is rich, you could, you know, people go around and just, you could say, the tune carry, but when you have a great lyric with it, then it remains because people remember words. They don't remember words, strangely enough, after they hear the song the first time. You know, they go to a hit show like, like South Pacific, for instance. Or they hear a song, uh, some enchanted evening. When they go out dancing that same night, they, the band plays da 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 da. They don't remember the words, but they remember the song because they remember the words in the confines of the play. That's what the drama has. You do not remember a song unless it has great words in it on the stage. If it does, you'll remember the tune. If it doesn't, you dismiss it. It seems to me you're the, the time that you got together with Stephen Sondheim to write Gypsy was the, the moment when you wrote those very, very successful dramatic songs. I mean, well, Rose's that was, turn yes, up to that time. Listen, uh, the, 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 the High Button Shoes and, and Gentle Fur Blondes had all hits, big hit songs, and, and as well as uh, Bells Are Ringing Just In Time and Party's Over. When I wrote with Stephen Sondheim, the subject matter was dramatic. He had a story of a woman who wanted to be somebody 
and couldn't emerge by herself and so she wanted to emerge through her children looking for identification and that's tragic because everybody in the confines of the drama of Gypsy got what they wanted excepting she. She never got what she wanted. At the end she got nothing. So when you go to that, you know, and I must say Stephen Sondheim without a doubt is the greatest lyric writer I've ever written with. He knows more about lyric writing. Well, he knows more about what's wonderful about Steve. Steve's a fine musician. Uh, I suppose if Steve hadn't written lyrics he'd have been a fine composer, just straight composer. But because Steve understands music, when I play him a tune, a melodic structure, eight bars, sixty on holding, he knows the importance where I'm important musically and he's going to say something important. He never says unimportant things where the, the thing or a, an intricate rhythm. He, he values notes. He appreciates music. Other fellas just, other people just set words to music, that's all. They're too busy trying to find out what they're gonna say and they don't hear the music. They just hear rhythmic pattern. They get the metric sense, half note that goes up, down, you know, you know. It seems like the, the other lyricist that you collaborated, very similar to like that, uh, is Frank, Frank Lesser. Frank Lesser was a different, uh, Frank Lesser was a Runyon-esque character acting that way. He wasn't really off that way, but when he wrote, he became something else. You know, Frank Lester anticipated the revolution of youth today, many years ago. He started using a kind of cheap wordage. It was poetic, but he, used it. he says, they don't understand four-syllable words, and he kind of said it in another way. Uh, Frank Lester never wrote, a lot of lyric writers write, dummy lyrics down, you know, they write and change. Frank never wrote a lyric down in his life. He memorizes, he writes it in his head. I can appreciate because I don't write at the piano, you see, I write away from the piano. Uh, I go to the piano subsequent to flatter my ego, add, play it however I want to play because I play, I think I play rather well. You know, you've worked with many greats, I mean, George Abbott and Jerome Robbins, and what do you think of the director as, in terms of the musicals that you've well, I tell you, when you talk about you know, I've only met one genius in the theater, and that was Jerome Robbins. Jerome, Jerome Robbins is more than a director. He uh, he knows how to direct it, but while he's directing, he, he remembers how the ending of the play goes. He never destroys a character for the moment. It's more than just keeping the man, say, in character. You gotta keep him in character with the play, the meaning of the play. Should he do something, should he lift a cigarette at the wrong time, should he say a word this way, may, may be wrong for the character. The actor wants to do everything, you know, the actor. But uh, direct, you asked me about directors. George Abbott is a teacher. George Abbott directs Boom, boom, boom. No time wasted. He'll cut, he'll cut, edit, so he's accommodating what he's got on the stage. He'll never make that actor go for more than he can do. He doesn't believe the actor could go for more, and so he cuts it out, and he, but he, brilliant. He, he was a great teacher, and some of his teachings were beyond belief, 
between George Abbott. You know, you know what Robbins always said, there were two Georges in his life, George Abbott and George Balanchine. Uh, but indeed, Jerry had that special something that comes to one of a kind. I call him the one of a kind people. There's a freedom on a stage production. There's a special invention. Because we might remember when you do direct the stage, there's no close up. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you, the close up is lighting, words that you say, a move in the way to always see the man sitting in the 17th row. The man sitting in the 17th row in the movie gets the same shot as the man sitting in the first row because that camera moves in, he sees a face of crying, laughing, whatever it is. There's a funny story about Busby Berkeley. And reactions. Poor Busby Berkeley. I did a show, it was the most unfortunate show, it's that show called Glad to See You. And this man, you know, you say Busby Berkeley, we got Busby Berkeley. Busby Berkeley was very sick and he was taking some sort of, some drugs of some kind and, and drinking at the same time. And I came into the theater while we were on the road in Philadelphia with this unfortunate show, Glad to See You. And there he was and the two people, he was staging the ballad, and the two people were against the back bricks. And I walked over and said, Busby, would you pardon me for a minute? You know, we'll never hear them singing against the bricks. The orchestra sits, 28 men are playing. Way back there, this, this is the day before microphones, before we didn't use microphones right. in the theater. You have to bring him down closer to the audience. Oh, he says, don't worry about it, because I'm coming in on a crane shot to them. It's a close-up. Mm. He was no, all confused. He, didn't, he thought he was on a stage, all mixed up. But the, those are pathetic cases. But uh, they're funny and pathetic. The very first show of yours that I was entitled to see was Funny Girl. And it's one of the reasons that I'm in this business, my uh, experience with that show. And I know that it was really through your efforts that, that Barbara Streisand ended up playing. Yes, Barbara Streisand, I was writing Funny Girl, which started writing it for Mary Martin, and Mary Martin quickly dropped out because she realized she'd be wrong for a thing. And then uh, the producer got Robbins into it. and. Uh, Oh, Stephen Sondheim was going to be the lyric writer originally for with Mary Martin and walking out. He says, I don't want to write for Mary Martin for this show. I read in the paper, see, Barbara was in a, she played a minor part in a show called I Can Get It For You Wholesale. And I uh, read in the paper in Walla Kerr's review, not at that time, but many, uh, maybe a year before, he says, if they ever do the life of Fanny Bryce, this girl should play it. And David Merrick said, I want you to go down, we're looking for somebody. I want you to go down and, and see this girl, Barbara Streisand. She's singing down at the Bonsoir, down in the village. And I went 27 nights out of 28. Did not believe, um, although I must tell you, I had met her earlier. In fact, I had a date with her. Uh, but I was so taken with her. And subconsciously, while I was writing, now we have Anne Bancroft signed for Funny Girl. While we have Anne Bancroft, so I'm writing the score, and I'm subconsciously writing the score for that girl, for her voice, not the character, her voice, for Anne Bancroft. How did it end up to? And end up we end up uh, that Anne Bancroft cussed me out for writing such an intricate score that I will never get anybody to act the part and sing the difficult score. And Robin said, if we don't get that person, we won't do the show. Uh, but he knew he had a show when he heard three or four of the songs. I wrote Bob Merrill. 
and that's I guess that's why the song suited Barbara. So I was writing for her. For she didn't know, but I was writing him for her all the time. In fact, Barbara didn't like people, and she didn't like Rain of My Parade. You know, it's, that's another story. You have to fight your way. You know, with all everybody thinks it's easy. I think there have been too many remakes of old movies and remakes of old plays done in a musical. I have found my four biggest hits were originals. High Button Shoes was original. Bells Are Ringing was an original by Comden and Green, an original story. Funny Girl was an original biography, never done the story Fanny Bryce, a biography, original. I mean, I'd never seen a movie before of Fanny no, Bryce, so it was an original. And Gypsy was an original, came from the novel. I call it original if you, if you dramatize a novel, that's an original. I, I, I mean, by original, I mean something that hasn't been made in a movie before or a play before. No, and I think there's too many of those. Carmelina is based on a movie. I remember Mama is based on an old play. And a movie. I mean, and a movie. Yeah. Now, in just in the last few years, Annie was on a cartoon. That's like an original. Let, let's really, South Pacific was an original. Right. West Side Story was an original. It was, sure, you say it's based on Romeo and Juliet, but it's treatment was original. New Conception, all dance, you know. And I, I agree with Steve Sondheim. I want to go his way. I'm, he's younger than I am. He's come into it later than I am. But I go his way. And he says, if I don't do originals, then who's going to do them? We must do originals. So he, he says, Julie, please do originals. So that's what I'm doing. I'm doing the original with Herb Gardner. I'm doing the original. Treasure Island is, is an original. I mean, it's a classic. I'm doing classic. It's the same as Peter Pan doing that. It's a, a version of, but it, when, those are classical things, you know. They're last forever, Treasure Island, Peter Pan. Julie Stein at the piano, playing Never Neverland, from his beloved score to Peter Pan. You've been listening to excerpts from an interview with legendary composer Julie Stein. 
Associate producer Jeff London. Anything Goes Backstage with Broadway's Best is produced and hosted by Paul Lazarus. For more information, visit anythinggoespl.com. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and follow us. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.